0: On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC on News Talk. Sabina Higgins attacked over naive Ukraine Post, uh, is the front page headline. Sabina Higgins, the wife of President Michael D. Higgins, has been described as naive, patronising, and guilty of West splaining in a chorus of criticism from the government backbenchers and senior academics after she called for a ceasefire and negotiations in Ukraine now this all originates in an editorial that was published by the Irish Times this week which didn't meet with Sabina Higgins' approval and she wrote a letter then to the editor and in that she wrote that until the world persuades President Vladimir Putin of Russia and President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine to agree to a ceasefire and negotiations then the long haul of terrible war will go on how can there be any winner and this has been seized upon first of all by the Russian ambassador to our and Yuri Filatov, who says that it's, uh, you know, he, he says that the remarks make perfect sense. She's against war. We're all against war, he said. Um, but it's been seized upon by many other people, including uh, Willie O'D, former Defence Minister, Regine D'Arty, the uh, present leader of the Shannad, uh, Lisa Chambers, the Fianna Fáil leader in the Shannad, uh, and plenty of others who are quoted in this piece in the Sunday Times largely is criticising the idea that uh, Ukraine should negotiate peace within that country. There's a a perception among a lot of the contributors to this article uh, that Russia is the sole aggressor responsible for all of this and therefore the idea that you would negotiate uh, with Russia they see as being uh, objectionable. But Simita Higgins attracting some criticism for that. An interesting side plot in all of this is that her letter was published on the President.ie website uh, briefly earlier this week before being removed again. Uh, and the Department of Foreign Affairs is declining to comment on whether there was any correspondence between the government and the ORAS around all of that, which is uh, an interesting side note. Um, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, uh, minimum alcohol pricing has increased drug use in Scotland, uh, according to some health experts there. Uh, they say that the the fact that alcohol has now uh, almost become prohibitively expensive for some people uh, has coincided with uh, increased use of recreational drugs, which are increasingly becoming uh, cheaper in some circumstances. Uh, And there's a warning that perhaps the same might be true in Ireland a few months after um, the same cause has taken up effect here. Um, And also on the front page of the Sunday Times, and I'm really amazed this isn't getting more play across the water this morning, um, the Prince of Wales accepted £1 million payment from the family of Osama bin Laden. Uh, And I I don't know if I necessarily need to give you that much more context to the whole story other than that the the man who's going to be the king of of the united kingdom in uh, the not too distant future has been accepting money from the family of Osama bin laden that really that, that tells you the the whole story really um the front page of the business post state asks GAA, IRFU and FAI to shelter refugees from Ukraine the government is holding discussions with the GAA the IRFU the FAI and other sporting bodies as part of its scramble to source emergency accommodation for Ukrainian refugees this comes as the Aviva stadium was used last week to temporarily shelter around 100 refugees amid a worsening supply crisis uh, the need to find new places for Ukrainian refugees is intensifying because as the piece suggests around 5,000 students uh, 5,000 beds rather in student accommodation are expected to be returned to colleges in the coming weeks. There are a lot of Ukrainian refugees who are currently residing on college campuses. For example, the the Business Post tells us that the government has reached out to refugees who are residing um, in UCD out in Belfield on the south side of the city here telling them that they need to pursue housing with host families or run the risk of having to be returned to the likes of City West Hotel uh, because UCD is going to need that accommodation back uh, for students as the term uh, kicks off in in about uh, 5 weeks time or so. Uh, The Department of Children and Equality has instructed the Department of Sports to contact any sporting venues uh, to see if any of their uh, premises or any other buildings could be used to house Ukrainians. A spokesman for the Department of Sports said that it has contacted those three major sporting bodies and Sport Ireland to seek assistance. Um, Interesting side note, and I don't mean at all to take away from the gravity of the story, Um, But it is worth noting that Croke Park is not currently being considered a suitable uh, location for the housing of Ukrainian refugees uh, because of the forthcoming series of Garth Brooks concerts, uh, which is just quite something. Uh, Also quite something on the front page of the Business Post, by the way, is that size requirements for back gardens in newly built homes could be cut by a third as part of new rules being considered by government uh, which developers claim would see average uh, house prices fall by 20%. Uh, This is something which Dara O'Brien is apparently looking at. He's going to issue new guidelines on high-density home building this year and the measures are expected to pave the way for more own door high-density housing projects which are not apartments and apparently part and parcel of that whole arrangement will be uh, smaller back garden space. Um, The front page of the Sunday Independent tells us that the disgraced former guard of Paul Moody who, uh, as people will know, was was jailed uh, this week for um one of the first people to be prosecuted in the country for um for coercive uh, control uh, of a former partner the paper tells us that he is also under criminal investigation for historical sex abuse um, the investigation is progressing well a source said, and it's understood to have been continuing for some time this obviously follows last Tuesday where the 42 year old was jailed for three years and three months for his four year campaign of harassment using threats assaults and coercive control against his cancer stricken ex-partner the abuse came to light when he voluntarily handed in his mobile phone to Garda and th- this is something which is pointed out a lot in some of the reporting about all of this this weekend um, Garda Moody made a false statement claiming that a a relative of his ex-partner had asked him to commit a criminal offence because they'd asked him to so-called square a ticket for a road traffic offence and officers from the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation were able to quickly dismiss uh, these false allegations against the relative who's understood to be a taxi driver But in doing so, because Paul Moody had handed over his phone, it was only by him voluntarily surrendering his phone as part of that investigation that they then uncovered the litany of abuse against his terminally ill ex-partner. Also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, we learned that Frank Clark, uh, who until last year was the most senior judge in the country, has now resigned uh, from his role as a court in the Dubai International Financial Centre court system. Uh, This is only a couple of days after he was sworn in. You'll have heard uh, Tom Douglas tell you that story just a few moments ago. Uh, And finally for now, the front page of the Mail on Sunday, which carries an op-ed from the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee who has declared the need for a national conversation about consent uh, she has an op-ed in today's piece she's talking about the changes that were approved by uh, Cabinet this week effectively uh, resetting the law around consent because as it stands right now uh, somebody can offer the defence in court that they had a mistaken belief that they had consent as a defence for a rape allegation which is the, the case as it currently stands so they can say that they thought or they assumed that they had the consent of the other party but Helen McEntee uh, has got changes this week at Cabinet where the accused will now have to show that their what their belief was based upon They'll have to convince a jury that that was the reasonable basis uh, for thinking that they had consent. This, of course, in a week where there were some several high-profile instances uh, of sexual assault in, in the public domain. Uh, so that is our tour of the front pages of this morning's papers. We're joined the studio by Tanya Ward, who's the Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, uh, and also uh, by Lauren uh, Boland, who's a reporter with the journal.ie, who specialises in climate reporting. And I actually want, want to start on that note. And Lauren, I would just remark you before you, we, we came on air... I don't know whether it's kind of significant that the, the climate plan doesn't feature on the front pages of the Sunday papers. Maybe it's because the story is, is three days old and there's there's really nothing more to say. There's certainly some extensive reporting inside the papers about the, the colour of what went on in government buildings this week. Um, but I don't know what to make of the fact that it's not actually front page news, given that it is the the defining issue of our times.
1: And I, I mean, look, this week alone, where do you start with it? Like, we, it, was, it was really a week of it. Um you had climate minister, agriculture minister completely at loggerheads, meetings dragging on without agreement. Um, Eamon Ryan, according to one of those articles in The Indo talking about how Eamon Ryan was up at 3am one morning trying to, trying to to pin down the numbers to make something to work. Um, and I suppose it was such a week of it with all of these things going on that now that the deal has been done, I suppose there's, there's nothing new to say in terms of the numbers. We have the numbers now, um, but... Um, It is, I suppose, disappointing for maybe people who have been really invested in this this week, whether that's on the farming side and and how those uh, sectoral emission targets are going to affect the agriculture sector or from i suppose the the climate expert side people who are looking at you know the, the kind of the the broad picture of this and and how this is going to affect our climate work um i maybe be even making a mistake in in, in splitting those two groups <laughs> in one way you know maybe <laughs> it, it, yeah. it, it, i'm probably feeding in there to a bit of this kind of yes. uh, you it's know the two in irish politics yeah, yeah. described today in the um, times it's 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 a massive thing for everyone um in society right now and it, it really has it, it was um an an incredible week of news with all of those kind of mm. you know meetings dragging on and uh, backbenchers saying one thing, some party leaders saying another yeah. and um.
0: Well, we were talking about to the, uh, the Green Party chairperson, Senator Pauline O'Reilly. After 12 o'clock, she was the one person who maybe threw a grenade into the whole thing, whether she knew it or not, by suggesting that the Greens could walk if they didn't extract enough concessions from the agriculture sector. Um, as regards the content that is there, because it is dealt with extensively across uh, all of today's papers, is there anything that jumps out with you as being particularly meaningful or striking?
1: Uh, I think that the article on page 10 of the Sunday Independent by Philip Ryan is, is a very interesting look at the... The, the details coming up to when the deal was done. So uh, he goes into the, the meetings that happened that week. There was the, the Cabinet Committee on Climate on the Monday. Then you had the party leaders meeting on the Tuesday. Obviously, Cabinet itself on Wednesday. And all of the... All of the kind of the details of how the different parties were were trying to navigate to get that deal. I think it was interesting, he looks at the kind of the stances of the different party leaders on when they thought it could get done. So mm. Michal Martin kind of saying we need to find some kind of compromise. Eamon Ryan obviously still pushing to get that 30%, but then Leo Vradker, he writes, was saying that he believed it could be set aside until September. And um, because obviously this meeting that happened this week was meant to be you know the last cabinet meeting of the summer. Yeah. We were already a couple of weeks past the doll and um, going into its summer recess. Um, um, and Leo Radker saying he thought, you know, that this matter could be kind of set aside and, and left mm. to think about a bit longer I, I, until so, As someone who
0: reports an awful lot on climate issues, I, um, I, 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 I'd be interested to know what, what you think about this, because, um, yes, there's an argument to be made and I heard some people suggesting that uh, it might well make sense to delay all of this till September because then you'd have the parliamentary parties back and there'd be the sense of an, instead of this deal being done by ministers and then backbenchers coming back after a couple of weeks to disown the whole thing, that will be a sense of, of ownership. I don't know if that makes sense because don't forget there is an actual budget to be drawn up by the end of September and the stuff that they've committed to now has to be funded in mm-hmm. about two months. So I don't think it would be tenable to have put the decisions off until the doll came back because you wouldn't have long enough to figure out how you'd actually pay for all the stuff you just agreed.
1: Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, you obviously don't want to ever make some kind of deal or big political agreement when the, the right conditions aren't in place to have a, a good deal coming out of it, but... Even the the budget thing is is obviously, yeah, definitely a factor there. But even on the actual climate science of it. Um, don't forget that these targets that, that the sectors have to reach by 2030, they're based on reductions compared to 2018. So we're already four, nearly five years past that. So the longer it goes or longer it could have went before actually making a deal on this, suddenly you're creeping further and further away from 2018 and closer to 2030. So to keep pushing off, actually setting down those figures, I think the longer the sectors were being made to wait, kind of more unfair would be, particularly when the hang up was over one particular sector mm. I don't think it would have been fair to the other sectors to leave them waiting any longer to get their particular numbers in place Yeah
0: that's a, that's a fair take uh, Tanya Ward good morning to you anything that jumps out from you this morning from the extensive uh, climate reporting that there is in today's papers
2: Yeah I mean I, I wonder I suppose uh, as you say in terms of the story maybe it's not there because the story has run its course but uh, I do know that you know the, the media doesn't get the same level of clicks on climate stories despite what's actually going to happen to us um, into the future but no doubt the farmers anyone directly affected is going to be pouring over the, new, the news coverage. What really struck me, and I suppose this doesn't always jump out sometimes around the coverage around it, is obviously the farmers are really feeling they're the ones being singled out. And I think the challenge is, is because our, our agriculture sector is so big in contrast to agriculture in Europe. It's I think 10%, uh, 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 10% of emissions are from f- farming in Europe on average. Here it's 38%. So unfortunately, it, it is a huge challenge. I think what's really coming through in, uh, in terms of how they even reached a deal, and it's really interesting watching the coverage, they reached it through personal relationships. Mm. Um, uh, there was a bowl of cherries, I think, in the middle. I think that was that, that apparently had a big effect. I must add that now to to, to my toolkit <laughs> going,
0: going, <laughs> going
2: forward. Um, but I, I, I think what's really significant about it is they have actually reached a, a, a deal. It probably isn't sufficient to protect the economy. I think it's something we're going to have to look at. But there's some other coverage that's really important, I think, around the climate change piece and one of the the pieces covered uh, in the business post was around um, Money Point the power plant. And it goes back to I think Laura, what you were saying, like there's uh, there's probably another hundred of these negotiations that have to take place. There's a, lots of different sectors that have to uh, discuss how they're going to uh, bear the brunt of emissions cuts. You know, the, the the failure to reach a higher emissions cut for agriculture means other sectors have to carry it and it's very complex because a money point story in the Business Post is saying um, is saying that it's been switched on. It's been switched on because we need the power. And mm. why do we need the power? It's because of the big data centres mm. and the of course the tech industry data that's huge to our economy as well so this is going to be really complex it's going to involve a national effort each and every industry is going to have to play its role and each and every person is going to have to play its role
0: that's a, it's a fascinating observation actually because i was going to make the observation that maybe um the, the deal about agriculture was slightly easier to extract because Eamon Ryan was not only the minister who was trying to broker this whole arrangement as the minister responsible for the environment but because he's also the minister responsible for energy and he's green-minded that he would almost be happy for energy to pick up some of the slack that other sectors like agriculture might not be willing to make and that it almost would have made negotiations a little bit easier. But if if the piece is right, Tanya, as you mentioned, if the Business Post is correct in reporting that the energy sector scaled back from 81% of reductions now to only 75% because... Eamon Ryan knew, Lauren, that he was going to have to keep Money Point going, and Money Point is a coal burning station. It does maybe uh, make you wonder just how, how much each side was actually looking after their personal fiefdoms, and they knew that all of the hard decisions would come back to bite them when it comes to their own Secretaries General and the permanent government saying they didn't want to do half the stuff that the Cabinet had committed to.
1: Mm, and don't forget that Eamon Ryan is also over transport, which is a, a sector that's handled separately again in those figures, and he kind of kept coming back to transport. He was really quick to, to bring transport up every time that agriculture was suggested that that was going to be hard. He was very quick to say, Oh, well, I think Transport is going to be the hardest. Less kind of discussion around energy, except for in the context of, obviously, the... The potential energy crisis we're facing mm. in the context of Russia and all of that but when he was kind of pushed on it it was always kind of transport he kept coming back to what I found really interesting actually about the money point um, in the context of the data centres but that there is another article in the Sunday papers there today talking about I think it's South Dublin County Council being yes. told not to effectively ban yeah. new data centres so, so
0: Peter Burke who's the minister responsible for uh, local government or he's one of the junior ministers at the Department of Housing has, has written to South Dublin County Council uh, telling it to scrap its plans for an effective ban on that centers in the area because they their, uh, their local chief executive uh, said that data centres were basically not permitted in areas that were zoned for employment in the draft development plan and he was saying mm-hmm. no, no they are mm-hmm. which is interesting in the, the light of the new statement from the government this week around what the data centres policy actually is
1: mm-hmm. I mean I think data centres obviously we have been talking about them I think we're going to be I think it's going to become or should probably become a major feature in these sort of discussions because obviously we're looking into really difficult situation with energy and when you see those kind of two articles next to each other talking about money point and how, how it's had to be ramped up because of this massive demand from data centres, but then also th- this sort of, I guess, Im- implicit, uh, you know, permission to kind of, re- you know, keep going with the data mm. centres. It, yeah. it, 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 it's... wants to intrude on the tech mm-hmm. industry. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a bizarre contrast looking at the two of those together. Like, is,
0: is it basically the case, Tanya, that we're going to need the tax revenues from large multinational tech operators so that we sort of have to be able to keep hospitable business conditions for them even if it means we're making a rod for our own backs.
2: Oh yeah, it'd be great if they were paying it though, right? <laughs> they were paying well, all the taxes, right? Well, so, so
0: They, they would that's contest a, that. But that's, yeah. another, that's another yeah.
2: debate. But I think the bigger issue I suppose of the tech industry is the jobs that it, that, it, that it maintains. Really high quality jobs for a lot of people. Um, I'd love to see, to be honest, the real detail of how we get there when it comes to reducing emissions in the alcohol or in the uh, the agriculture area. Because the thing that really concerns me is just the the effects on ordinary people living in rural Ireland. I mean, half of all children living in poverty are in rural Ireland. Incomes are much lower, um, and there's a real question about that just transition piece. How is this going to impact on ordinary people? You know, like when they're introducing the different measures, they need to start thinking about incomes and, and and trying to safeguard and protect the quality of life and incomes of people who are more likely at the lower end of the income scale than at the higher end of the income scale i I, I know what I know some of the measures already mooted in the papers was uh discussions regulation the, the, the use of fertilizer putting a database in place because that obviously is contributing to emissions the other one coming in is burying and slurry so there's a huge amount of detail obviously in the rollout uh, and, and look it's probably going to reduce the incomes of bigger farmers you know that's probably going to be the case. Uh, but it's, the, it's a small farmer or the ordinary worker living in rural Ireland. I'd love to see the attention actually uh, flip to
0: um, just before we go to another break, um, Lauren, I wanted to, to, to pick your brain on this. There's a piece on, on page 12 of the Business Post by Thomas Duffy, who's a former president of and Afirma. He's the current vice president of uh, CEJA, the European Council of Young Farmers. And he's he's been quite vocal this week and actually a very articulate voice around uh, some misinformation that's been sown in, in the farming sector. But he's also making it clear that while there are, yes, genuine concerns held by those in the farming sector, that they've also been targeted by some other um, actors of... I don't want to even cast cast aspersions as to what their what their intentions might be, but for example, you know messages which went viral about how you know figures from the CSO about how the cattle herd is now six point five million, but making no distinction between a six hundred kilo cow and, and a fifty kilo uh, calf, and and the complete dif- the difference that there is in the the climate impact of all of those, and and maybe he's touching on a point that while yes agriculture is responsible for the lion's share of, of emissions in this country, that maybe they're still getting a slightly unfair treatment in the way that the media discusses them.
1: I mean I think in, in in the context of what Tanya is saying about protecting it all, all around this kind of the, the just transition element of it you do have to have those safeguards in place for people who are going to be the most impacted by these changes I do think I think it, it's an interesting article that went in the Sunday business post I think if we're going to get into squabbles about you know 6.5 million cattle and is that a good representative of or when you break it down into then adult cows versus uh, young cows mm. it's the reality is we know that um cattle and and other livestock um are a major contributor to emissions you know wh- whether that whether it's fair to, to that particular representation of it was fair Yeah, we do know that realistically agriculture does have a massive impact on emissions, and something does have to be done about it. I think the point he makes in that article that's interesting is actually the piece, the point at the very end where he says that with the target for emissions reductions uh, in agriculture now set at 25%, this could create two possible negative outcomes: an aggressive Dutch-style direct action campaign, as certain misinformation actors have already advocated for, or alternatively, a despair at the level of the challenge ahead, which will undermine take-up of measures. I think that uh, call to the, the the what we saw in the Netherlands were far were out in those really intense protests mm. um, it's interesting whether we will we will see something like that um, I think possibly if we were going to I think maybe we would have even seen it this weekend I think maybe it's the, the target that has been landed on I think I think possibly the agriculture sector is maybe quietly relieved that it's not thirty percent. Um, obviously, on the other side of it, then you have climate scientists who are saying it really needs to go further than than what we have landed on. Mm. Um, I think maybe if we we're going to see protests like that, we'd have we'd have heard some kind of mumbles on them. Um, yeah. But it will be interesting to see. I think
2: the key is leadership now. Right, mm-hmm. is that we, as all the leaders in our different sectors, economies, we actually need to come out and we need to let people know this is possible. We can actually achieve this. I mean, one of the things I really noticed uh, the climate deniers have change from being climate deniers to actually there's no way to reach us. This is impossible. This is our new new message. Mm. Um, and that's, that is that is going to cause despair I think because people will feel like we're cutting back we're doing what we need to do mm. but actually we're never going to make it anyway.
0: But arguments like that are certainly emboldened though when the government hasn't even prescribed how it's going to make a 51% cut. That if it only outlined the sums yeah. this week yeah. for 43% mm-hmm. yeah. and there's another bit which is being trusted to some as yet yeah. determined mm-hmm. technology yeah. w- which is an interesting approach for a country that was just so dismissive of it when it came to Brexit. Yeah, how yeah we would yeah. avoid, mm. avoid hard border with some some unspoken technology and, and now we're pinning our climate yeah, hopes a bit on the of same faith thing. In it. You know, <laughs>
2: yeah. There's a bit of faith, bit of faith in, the, in, in the new targets but it is concerning to be honest the climate scientists are saying it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Eamon Ryan proposed look we're going to grow these other industries that will offset the emissions in the, in the agriculture area and maybe that will happen but I, I think there's a lot of very painful negotiations and discussions that are going to happen now over
0: the next couple of years um, Stay with us it's 11.26 and we've got plenty more to discuss including that story in the front page of the Business Post about sporting bodies being asked to come up with accommodation for Ukrainian refugees we are talk as one of the authors of that after the break Uh, Some coverage across the papers, most prominently in the Business Post today about the state asking for the help of sporting bodies to try and find more shelter for refugees from Ukraine. Uh, Aaron Rogan is a reporter with the Business Post. He is a co-author of uh, today's piece on page one. Um, Aaron, thank you for for taking your call this morning. Um, It seems the government, does it give the impression that the government is now almost trying to leave no stern unturned by by getting in touch with bodies like the GAA and the IRFU to, to try and seek assistance in housing Ukrainian refugees?
3: Hi, Gav. Uh, yeah, it really is. Um, I mean, you know, we often describe the government as scrambling to do something. It's sort of a nice newspaper term, but in this case, it really is a scramble. So they're contacting the sporting bodies you you mentioned. There's 41 religious congregations who are providing accommodation. The local authorities are looking for buildings. They're onto the Scouts to get hostels. They're onto they've issued a the tender last week to hotels, hostels, B and B's holiday villages um, and of course the universities the student accommodation has been a big factor in housing about 5000 of the 32000 who are in state accommodation but that of course is coming to an end soon because the those student complexes will be needed as the academic year restarts so it's a real scramble from the government to try and deal with this um and They've done a reasonably good job so far and um, a phrase that was used last week was that the 32,000 that are in state accommodation is the equivalent of, of housing the population of Bray or Navin. So it's not a small thing. It's, it is a big, big job to try and do this.
0: Um, is this what then led to the, the news that we had this week that over 100 people had been housed temporarily in, in the Aviva Stadium? Is, is that the direct result of a bid like this?
3: Yeah, so they've, be, they've been in contact for the last while with sporting bodies and the, those groups I've mentioned looking for anything that might be suitable for short short term emergency temporary accommodation. So the 100 or so uh, refugees who ended up in the Aviva last week, that was because the accommodation they were due to go to um, for longer term needed a, a new ventilation system. So. They get moved from a a transit hub such as City West into you know semi-permanent sort of three-month six-month accommodation but if there's a a snag in that accommodation then they need to go someplace because the transit hub is dealing with about you know a thousand to fourteen hundred people every week so there's just those little gaps in it and that's why people end up in places like the Aviva or a few weeks ago in the old terminal building at the airport Um, and I think the the figure last week is about a thousand and a half people are in those sort of uh, what they're calling short-term emergency accommodations
0: um i know that it, it's not an easy thing to say in a sentence because the fai uh, and the uh, the gaa in particular is a very disparate body with different provincial and county councils and then then uh, parish boards and everything else as well uh, but what has the response been like from the sporting body so far to this appeal for accommodation
3: well the, the department of, of sports said that they were um it was a positive response uh, and we know that the, there has been, I mean, particularly with the GAA, there's been a lot, a lot of local engagement with it at a local level. Um, but it's not that's not just in terms of accommodation, that would be in terms of sort of integration into the community, making sure kids have something to do during the day and things like that. The problem with it all is that those bodies all have their primary purpose, which is to to host sport events. So, you know, Crow Park, where we understand isn't suitable because Garth Brooks is playing there five nights over two weeks and there's the ladies' football final today. You know, those they have prior obligations. Even the conference rooms in the Aviva were being used last week, um, other than the two for refugees to host conferences. So. It's not as simple as saying, yeah, come and take the stadium, it's idle. Like they, they are active all, all the year round.
0: And, and as you just mentioned there as well, there's going to be another pinch point coming down the tracks because obviously there are more and more people coming all the time in line with just the, the, the flow of, of migrants from Eastern Europe. But also, if uh, the likes of UCD is going to need its own accommodation back for its own students in, in about four or five weeks, then we're going to be looking at a pretty sticky situation again in the short term, aren't we?
3: Yeah, my colleague Donald McNamee was speaking to a refugee who's, who's in UCD uh, at the moment and they got a letter in the last couple of weeks saying basically try and find your, your try and find a, a host family to accommodate you or you're going to end up back in City West. Um, it's it's getting very sticky for a lot of the, the refugees because the vast majority of them are are, are women with children Um, they want their children to enrol in school in September but they don't know where they'll be. Some people we've spoken to have jobs, um, but if they're about to be moved, they can't keep that job. It's, It's a real scramble. And I think that it is the student accommodation that's really causing it at the moment.
0: Uh, it's going to be fascinating times ahead Aaron Rogan reporter with the Business Post thank you very much for joining us this morning to discuss that piece uh, on the front page of that paper today about the state asking sporting bodies for help in trying to find shelter for the refugees coming from Ukraine uh, 1136 Lauren Boland and Tanya Ward uh, still with me in studio um, Tanya there's, there's a, a few bits and pieces across today's papers about uh, Ukrainian um, accommodation and the likes but there's also some some concerns being raised uh, by Hikwa on page 12 of the Sunday Independent that the health watchdog is flagging some concerns around the standard of the accommodation that's there
2: yeah I mean I. Suppose I suppose HICWA really zoning in on, on the issue around appropriateness because I think, you know, we, we know the government has done an extraordinary job to house so many people in such a short period of time, something that they have never really done before. But there is an issue with this Type of temporary accommodation, sports halls, uh, tents, etc., being used, mm. um, uh, and and, and it's, it's signifying, I suppose, to us that they're at the end of the uh, end of the road. And no doubt, the impact of this story is to go out to Ukrainians to be told Ireland is full, uh, and to any other else, anyone else who who might want c- to come to Ireland as well. It's going to be very stressful, people, even in a temporary situation living in those temporary forms of accommodation. Uh, I think what's really critical, and and Hickett names it. It doesn't have a role inspecting temporary accommodation or accommodation for Ukrainians per se, um, and I do think that they could play a, probably a very important role here. The standards are not going to be the same. It is a temporary form of accommodation. It's it's to make sure that, that people aren't out in the streets. But HECO could come in there and make sure that there are, are the safeguard safeguards stay certain safeguards stay in, safeguards, uh, stay in place because we do have women and children. It's been reported that some older people as well are in this form of accommodation, and I think it's going to be really critical that vulnerable people don't end up in this form of accommodation as well. But, you know, the other things jumping out of here and, and it's in the coverage, uh, there's a massive movement of people about to take place in, in towards the end of um, August with the student accommodation is accommodating about 5000 people. Mm. um, A lot of people w- want to make sure their children are in school in September. From the child's perspective, you know, refugee children, they want to get on with their lives, they want to make friends, they want to be part of a school community. It's going to be a massive effort around the country to get these children, once the Department of Children is able to find some form of accommodation to get them into schools. But I think there's something bigger here that we really need to unpick. Deeper in the in the coverage, it talks about the the partner, the the minister, the T shock intervened with the OPW and asked them to go off and find and develop uh, modular housing two, two thousand units in five different sites, mm. and that's the kind of action actually we need to see uh, we need to see happen. We need more permanent forms of accommodation. It's not sustainable to be in this emergency mold mm. mode the whole time, and it goes back to this bigger issue with housing. It's public intervention. It's the government yeah. having to get out there, build housing, build. Modular housing that's the only way to resolve the crisis that we're in at the moment I
0: I know it's been presented as a panacea before but the Department of Children which is responsible for um, refugee integration has issued tenders for um, modular homes which are expected to have a 60 year shelf life but they reckon that it's the best way of having uh, higher quality but still somehow impermanent uh, housing for for the people who are coming here Uh, by the way we should just explain um, why uh, the the state's health watchdog might be raising some concerns around uh, Ukrainian accommodation it's because uh, some people this was, was a report that was compiled a couple of months ago but some of the um, accommodation or some of the people that were going to be coming from Ukraine were a bit effectively going to be accommodated in nursing homes whether that's currently operable or, or previously disused and it was in that context then that Hikwa was invited to to offer its its uh, commentary because otherwise Hikwa as you say being a health services watchdog wouldn't really have much of a place yeah. in offering uh, commentary on, on the whole state of affairs um, Lauren as you say there's, there's quite a bit about um, refugee accommodation and the likes in today's papers anything that jumps out for you? few things that stuck out
1: to me, I think on the student accommodation front, it highlights that we already have this massive issue yeah. in student accommodation, which is that there's not enough of it, mm. um, which uh, speaks as well to the to the wider housing crisis that we're facing. Um, but particularly in student accommodation, and I guess speaking as someone who's not too long out of college, it's a massive, massive issue for um, undergraduate students, but also for international and postgraduate students who arrive here. There's a massive strain on student accommodation that we do have um, in terms of like purpose-built student accommodation. Then And also a really, really difficult situation trying to find digs or yeah. or house shares um, and the fact that now these beds can't be spared for those refugees coming into the academic year yeah. it's it's just testimony to the to the, the really difficult situation that we're already in Um, and I have to mention as well that the the fact that Croke Park isn't available because Garth Brooks is playing his five nights I mean that's just the twist of all twists isn't uh, it? It's, yeah I mean it,
0: it's quite the line I mean and, and look as, as Aaron pointed out and we spoke to him a couple of minutes ago these are sporting bodies and the, these, uh, these facilities did already have uses designated and their primary purposes as sports stadiums or as events venues so they, they do have to fulfill that but yet yeah, the the idea that that croke park the country's largest stadium couldn't be used for some purposes because garth brooks is there is is an interesting one um you you made me feel very old there a second ago by talking about the sh- the shortage of student accommodation because it's 15 years next month since the first time i was on this station as the accommodation officer for UCD Students' Union and highlighting (laughs) highlighting a sleep out that we were doing outside Leinster House where I I now Mm -hmm. work which is kind of frightening I'm passing by the same cobblestones every day Uh, we were sleeping outside Leinster House to draw attention to the shortage of student accommodation and the need for there to be a student accommodation task force and that was 15 years ago next month Mm -hmm. and it got better for a while and now it is infinitely worse and I have huge sympathy for anyone who's trying to uh, navigate their their whole way through all of this Um, there's still plenty more to discuss in today's paper so we're going to take our next break after we come back we're going to be discussing The controversy around Sabina Higgins and whether, first of all, it's appropriate for her to argue as she did, but then secondly, why her letter ended up on the President.ie website in the first place. Have to say, the News Talk Twitter, and we're keeping an eye on it all morning, is very active with people offering their feedback on Sabina Higgins' intervention uh, in the Ukraine conflict and the uh, the letter, which was uh, highlighted by the front page of the Sunday Times today, uh, written by uh, the the wife of the president to the Irish Times this week, saying that there really ought to be a negotiated ceasefire between President Vladimir Putin, uh, Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine and President Vladimir Putin of Russia Um, now this has attracted a lot of criticism because some people think that it's inappropriate to list the two leaders in the same sentence or to suggest some sort of Equivalence uh, and people suggesting therefore that it's inappropriate to suggest that they should sit down as equals when one side is far more an aggressor than the other um, and yet there's also a few people who have been uh, replying to your Talk this morning suggesting that actually there's nothing outrageous about uh, what she said at all for example Brenda says hey, really? a call for peace? who doesn't want to live in a peace with democracy? it's a pity that more people don't take an interest in our own country we currently have a mother whose son's death has been covered up by those who still occupy this country that's a reference to some matters uh, north of the border and other people simply saying so what do we in Ireland know about brokered peace? Um, a suggestion to you know the brokered piece that we had uh, north of this island um, twenty four years ago. Um, Lauren, uh, there's there's a couple of aspects to to this this Sabina letter. For, I, I want to come back to maybe the substance of it in a minute. But whether it's actually appropriate for president.ie, and this is something which I'm not quite resolved on, for the presidency website, president.ie, to publish a letter that was written to uh, the paper record um, by someone who is not the president and this kind of weird role where Ireland doesn't really have this this role or office of first lady and maybe this is the the slow creation of such a being. I don't know.
1: It is a strange one and you, you wonder how, what had to have happened behind the scenes for that letter to have ended up on the website and then what happened... To lead to it, to lead to it, no longer being there. Mm. Um, it's it is a funny one, and I think particularly as you say, because it's it's not a formal kind of position that she occupies. But obviously, there is you know she's a very a public figure, and I think mm. people do very much as a, you know associate her with with her her home in the Oris. Um, and I think if it wasn't something about ukraine if it had been a different issue something less something less kind of of the moment or you know less contentious i yeah. don't think there would have been this there, there there wouldn't have been the same um maybe questions raised about it in the context of whether it was appropriate or not and um, but because of the the content um then the actual um the publication of it kind of you know that's that's now become the focus yeah. as well,
0: because um, I think the one thing which is you know, I didn't realize that it had been published on President Dain, so it was reported in some of today's papers, um Tanya. There's always this sort of leap that, oh, because uh, someone who's married to someone else says something, that then you assume it must be the office holder themselves speaking. And I, I think that does people a disservice because it denies spouses their agency. There's plenty of that my wife and I yeah. don't agree on, like Saipan or the, yeah. the musical standing of Tom Petty, who I have no time for at all. Uh, so like there, there's a list of the length of your arm, and, and you're perfectly entitled to disagree. But that agency or that arm's length idea that she's entitled to speak as a private citizen is undermined if you publish the letter on the presidency website.
2: Maybe, and I mean, I think I think I said that particular office is probably different to other offices, you know, that we have in Ireland and politics because it is so symbolic. Um, and every time the president does, you know, push the boundaries in terms of what he wants to say, it ends up being on front pages, and you get the the you know the, the mm. all the backbenchers coming out and saying, you know, he's overstepped the mark again. I mean. I think it's very interesting, Laura. Much what you had to say is there's something deeper there. Is this the beginning, and is there questions around? You know, should the first lady have a have a have a chance to shape the public agenda because she is a humanitarian, she's a human rights advocate herself? Is this is probably not the one you choose to do it though? I think if you were going to try and develop that, um, and and I, I probably wouldn't have put that one on 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 the president website myself, to be honest, because I think the issue here is. Um, the real, the, the, the ending of the conflict has to start with Russia leaving Ukraine. That's what needs to happen. Obviously, Sabina Higgins is hoping that that would happen through peace talks Ukrainians are responding to this negatively, and they are saying, "No, Russia has to leave." Um, and then, uh, w- what really jumped out to me in the coverage about, I think, the stance in relation to this was uh, Donika o- 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 Brayon, and he was saying it's a classic example of West Splaining, It's covered in the Sunday Times yeah, or public figures. Politics
0: in DCU. He's an expert in post-Soviet politics.
2: Yeah, where public figures in the West deny uh, uh, agency to people living in in the region. And I suppose what's really this this, this discussion debate is reflecting different perspectives on how you end the conflict. Um, I think Sabina Higgins is picking up on Jeffrey Robertson, who's a well-known, famous human rights lawyer, uh, who essentially said that the the, the way to end this is through peace talks. Um, But I think there's a feeling that the way that this will end um, is is by Russia leaving and there'll be a similar situation to the Afghans. And I can understand why the Ukrainians are are very upset about this, because Russia has used this in its propaganda machine particularly naming the wife of the president that's I think the problem with this is anytime you say anything and if you're in the public office the Russians will leave it, use it. and I think that, that, mm-hmm. that that's really significant But the other thing I think this goes to the heart of the Ukrainian people themselves because the reason they have survived for so long that they have acted acted as a, a buttress against Russian aggression is because they have stood up <laughs> it's because mm-hmm. they have said had, they've been motivated and they' have fought Russia at, at every corner, So they are not in the mindset to accept a peace agreement because that means they will have to give up. They're they're motivated to end this. And I think that's why you're seeing the kind of controversy that you're seeing at the Mm -hmm. moment. And I mean, Tanya, you
1: mentioned the kind of the response from Russia, the ambassador here, Yuri Filatov, he Mm. responded to Sabina and and he essentially said that, oh, she has the right kind of idea, which is maybe not the kind of endorsement that she was expecting. No
0: no one wants war, he said, Mm -hmm. in a comment of quite significant uh, cognitive dissonance I we'll we, suspect
2: and you can understand why she came out I mean like this week you know there are different points in this conflict where a new story hits and it, you, you know it just rocks you I mean what happened to the PO that the, captured Ukrainian soldiers this week the kind of dismemberment and, and various atrocities that were committed against them. you can imagine why she, she's sitting there in the OR saying I can't stomach this mm.
0: anymore but you can also imagine then why people would see that and say that there is no moral equivalence here that this is not that they yeah. don't see Russia as being yep. people that you sit down with in yep. business suits around a table and negotiate the terms, of and they base. can't
2: negotiate, right? I mean, this is yeah. the thing: Russia doesn't really negotiate, and, and 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 they're a bit, you know, they 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 they, they usually rene- uh, renegade. I think possibly what's a bit different here is people feel Putin is on the way out, and he's got nothing to lose, and he's going to keep the conflict going, and that's why we need we need a ceasefire of sorts. But look, there is other measures in play. You're hoping that what's happening internally in Russia might have some effect uh, on, on the conflict going forward. But I think what it is, is it is a reminder when it comes to ending the conflict. I think what we need to be starting with it, what is what the Ukrainian people want to see happen. Mm. And that's something we in the West need to think about as well.
0: Uh, I see where there's, there's a nice little uh, Twitter exchange which uh, on, on News Talks mentions right now, which summarises the debate pretty neatly. Um, somebody just simply says that calling for peace is appropriate for a neutral country. To which somebody else replies and says, but peace in that context would be capitulating to a foreign power who have taken and destroyed large parts of the country and that it's not appropriate for such a message to be expressed in this fashion by the offices of the president. And maybe it is that point about offices of the president, Lauren, and I don't mean to, to come back to the original point, but if we don't have this culture in Ireland of there being a first lady or this idea of the president's spouse or partner being this sort of active political presence... Actually, well, maybe we're in denial about whether there is such a thing because Martin McAleese was credited as doing a lot of work uh, to try and engage with Unionists in the course of the peace process and that that was a situation in which someone who has no mandate was using the functions of the Oris for good purpose. So maybe we've been deluded in, in thinking that there isn't really a role for a first spouse or a first lady when in fact we have been Quietly harbouring yeah. one for quite some time, mm,
1: and maybe it's something that we need to be clear, be a bit clear about going into elections. Not that the spouse would be a running mate or anything like mm. that, but just I mean, if you look at the US, obviously there's a very clear uh, position there mm. that the spouse of the president holds. Um, I think. Um, I, I can see why people say here if if the, it becomes kind of more that way. I can see why people would take issue with it happening covertly. Mm. Um, if you if somebody is a, a person who who was not elected, um, they shouldn't be, I suppose, uh, then coming out and kind of representing Ireland. Um, but if we know sort of if there's a, a clearer idea going into the election for the president, that well they are likely going to be accompanied by this other person who will, you know, in, in, in their own yeah. way, mm. um, do some type of work. Um, I think maybe that's, you know, if, if, there, if there's that kind of transparency yeah. about it, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it, I think the problem is if it happens in this more kind of, you know, half kind of just not really above, you know, the table kind of
0: way. Yeah. Uh, which then sort of maybe goes back to the question of whether it would be appropriate, irrespective of whether there was an office of first lady, and if, for example, the same letter or the same views had been expressed uh, by President Michael Lee Higgins himself, whether that would be appropriate, given that foreign policy is not the reserve of the president, it's the reserve of the government, and the government has made it pretty clear that it is on the side of, there is one aggressor here, and it's up to yeah. the aggressor to back down, and they're not to be negotiated with.
2: Yeah, I mean, thats the challenge, isn't it? Because, because uh, I suppose and you do speak out, and it's not an Irish government policy, you know, it 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 oversteps the mark in in terms of the office. I I do want to go back though. I do think there's something in it though. You know, as first lady, do you not have some? Role some visibility should not be dealt with transparently. I mean, I love the way she ended her letter. You know, uh, Sabina Higgins, Dublin 8. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, <laughs> but it's like yeah. it's kind of a reminder. Actually, I see. Yeah, well, it's exist. a reminder
0: of the the oddity of mm-hmm. the postcode of the oris being uh, yeah, Dublin H, H, H when it's the yeah, north yeah, side. I yeah. thought that
2: myself. I yeah. was like, we're in the same postcode. It's, it's a long-standing yeah. thing, and I've
0: never quite understood why that was.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's something worth looking at though, because it keeps on coming up. By, I think the role of the president and, uh, and 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 he is an amazing orator, and he's such an important role in shaping debates and discussions. Uh, And maybe there is a role for the First Lady as well in trying to debate and shape discussions. You know, there's been no transparency, as you say, Lauren. You need to put down some boundaries, some discussion on it. Martin Martin McAleese was able to do it and we were all happy about it. So it's probably something that needs to be explored into the future.
0: Um, Sean has been in touch about data centres per per our earlier conversation. He says data centres are not huge in this economy. Please stop with this line because the majority of them are run with less than 50 on-site engineers, which is true. But I suspect that the other, the major tech multinational Nationals that support thousands of jobs would probably argue that the data centres, albeit poorly staffed, are an integral part of, of their offering, but nonetheless, point taken. Um, and Councillor O'No O'Brien, who's a uh, a different O'No O'Brien, not the, the one that you'd usually hear from, he's a Social Democrats member of South Dublin County Council. He points out that a majority of councillors in South Dublin voted for the moratorium on new data centres for the duration of their most recent county development plan. There are currently 34 data centres in County South Dublin alone and another 15 have been approved. That's an awful lot. A relatively small area of turf. Uh, we are completely out of time. Huge thank you to Tanya Ward, who's the CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance, and Lauren Boland, reporter with the Journal. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.